Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Randy Rhodes, Mike Malloy, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The New York Times, The Sam Cedar Show, La Show, and The Young Turks. this letter this morning from a young Marine uh, that just blew my mind, really. You know, this is like George Bush's worst nightmare, is a young Marine who's been in Iraq, uh, who has a sense of history and is sick of the lies and knows how to write. This is a guy, uh, he's, his name is Philip Martin. He's been a Marine for two years. He's an infantry guy. He's a grunt. He's a ground pounder. He has been in 180 combat patrol. He's been on 180 combat patrols. He's seen two improvised explosive devices explode. Thank God he's not been injured yet. He has been in countless firefights. He's currently out of Iraq, but his second deployment is coming up on April of 2007. He's due to go back to Iraq, and he's 21 years old. He's only 21 years old. And listen to what he wrote. I'm sick and tired of this patriotic, nationalistic, fascist crap. I stood through a memorial service today for a young Marine that was killed in Iraq back in April. During this memorial, a number of people spoke about the guy and his sacrifice for the country. How do you justify sacrificing your life for a war, which is not only illegal, but is being prosecuted to the extent where the only thing keeping us there is one man's power and his ego? A recent Marine Corps intelligence report was leaked that said that the war in Al-Ambar province is unwinnable. It said there was nothing we could do to win the hearts and minds or the military operations in that area. So I wonder, why are we still there? Democracy is not forced upon people at gunpoint. It's the result of forward-thinking individuals who take the initiative and risks to give their fellow countrymen a better way of life. When I joined, I took an oath. In that oath, I swore to protect the Constitution of the United States. I didn't swear to build democracies in countries on the other side of the world under the guise of national security. I didn't join the military to be part of an Orwellian war machine that is in an obligatory war against whoever the state deems the enemy to be so that the populace can be controlled and riled up in a pro-nationalistic frenzy to support any new and oppressive law that will be the key to destroying the enemy. Example given, the Patriot Act, so aptly named and totally against all that the Constitution stands for. President Bush used the reactionary nature of our society to bring our country together and to infuse into the national psyche a need to give up their little used rights in the hope to make our nation a little safer. The same scare tactics he used to win elections. He drones on and on about how America and the world would be a less safe place if we weren't killing Iraqis and that we'd have to fight the terrorists at home if we weren't abroad. In our modern-day emotive society, this strategy, or strategy, works or had worked up until last month's elections. My point is this. To show that America was never nationalistic, if anything, they were Stalinistic, giving their allegiance to the state of their residence. This is shown in the fact that the founders created states with fully capable and independent governments and not provinces that were just a division of the federal government. These men believed that America was a place where imperialistic values would be non-existent. 
where the people trying to make their lives better by working hard, thinking, inventing, and using the free market would tie up so much of normal life that imperialistic colonization and the fighting of wars thousands of miles away for interests that are not our own would be avoided. They believed this expansion of power could be left to the European nations, the England, France, and Spain of their time. However, this recent and current influx of nationalistic feeling has created an environment where giving up your rights, going to a foreign country to fight a people who did not ask for us to be there, nor did their leader do anything to warrant us being there, and dying would be considered honorable and heroic. I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe it's right for any American to go along with it anymore. Yes, I know that we're in the military and are bound by the UCMJ, in a, you know, Uniform Code of Military Justice, and somehow don't fall under the Constitution, the very thing we're supposed to be defending. But sooner or later, there is a decision that every American soldier, Marine, airman, and seaman makes to allow themselves to be sent to a war that's against every fiber this country was founded on. I know that when April rolls around, I will be thinking long and hard on that decision. Even though we are in the military, even though we in the military are just doing as we're told, we still have the moral and ethical obligation to choose to do as we're told or to say, no, that isn't right. I believe that if more troopers like me and the professional military, the officers and commanders, start standing up and saying that they won't let themselves or their troops go to this illegal war, people will start standing up and realizing what the heck is going on over there. The sad fact of the matter is that we are not fighting terrorists in Iraq. We are fighting the Iraqi people who feel like a conquered and occupied people. Personally, I have a hard time, I have a hard time believing that if I was an Iraqi, that I wouldn't be doing everything in my power to kill and maim as many Americans as possible. I know that the vast majority of Americans would not be happy with the Canadian government or any other foreign government liberating us from the clutches of George W. Bush, even though a large number of us would like that, and forcing us to accept their system of government. Would not millions of Americans rise up and fight back? Would you not rise up to protect and defend your house and your neighborhood if someone invaded your country? But we send thousands of troops to a foreign country to do just that. How is it moral to fight a people who are just trying to defend their homes and families? I think next time I go to Iraq, perhaps I should wear a bright red coat and carry a brown vest instead of my digitalized utilities and M16. Notice I never once used the word homeland in any of this. I have a secondary point I want to bring up now. Never once was the term homeland ever used to describe the country of America until Mr. Bush began the Department of Homeland Security after the 9-11 attacks. Taking a 20th century history class will teach us that the most notable countries in the last century that referred to their country in this way were Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. Hitler used the term fatherland to drum up support, nationalistic support, for his growing war machine. He used nationalism in the minds of Germans to justify the sacrifice of their livelihood to build the war machine, to get back their power from the oppressive restrictions of the English and that the French had put on them at Versailles. This is the same feeling that's been virulently infecting the American psyche in the last hundred years. This is the same feeling that consoles a mother after her son is killed in an attempt to prosecute an aggressor's war 10,000 miles away. It's also known as patriotism these days, but I say no more. 
No more nationalistic insanity. No more passing it off as patriotism. Patriotism is learning and educating oneself to understand what their country really stands for. I heard a lot during the memorial service about how the dead Marine did so much good for others and how his helping others was like a little microcosm of America helping because we have the power to do so. Well, if we have the power to help people, why aren't we helping in Darfur, where hundreds of thousands of people have died in the last 10 years? Saddam was convicted and sentenced to death for killing 143 Shiites who conspired to assassinate him. I know, all you patriotic Americans would be calling for the heads of anyone who conspired to assassinate Supreme Leader Bush. And yet we spend upwards of a trillion dollars and nearly 3,000 lives to help these Iraqis when they don't even want us there. Not to mention... We don't have the legal justification to be there. I guess we should wait around for the omnipotent W. Bush to decide who we should use our superpowerdom to help next. It's about time to throw him and the rest of the fascists out. Moreover, it's about time to start educating Americans about their past history and letting them know that imperialistic leaders are not what the founders of this great country wanted. Now, this kid is extraordinarily brave in that he wears the uniform. He is a Marine. He's also been to Iraq. He's in the infantry. He spent seven months in Al-Anbar, where they've just said, it's unwinnable. He went on more than 180 combat patrols in and outside Fallujah. He was hit with two IEDs while he was on patrols in and outside of Fallujah. Luckily, he was never injured. He's been involved in many, many firefights. He is stationed in California, and he is scheduled to go back for his second deployment to Iraq in April of 2007. And this kid is 21 years old and has more intellect and more intellectual honesty and passion for what this country is and disgust for what this country isn't but is now moving toward than a lot of adults, grown adults, serving this government as Congress members, both parties included. Out the door, just in time, head down the 405, gotta meet the new boss by 8 a.m. In the car, the wife is working hard. She's running late tonight again. Well, I know what I've been told. You gotta work to feed the soul. But I can't do this all on my own. No, I know I'm no Superman. from New York. No, sir. No surge. Our fifth story on the countdown, day two of the 110th Congress. The Democrats taking a surprisingly substantial step about the anti-war mandate that brought them back to power. The White House welcoming new ideas, new ideas on how to stay in Iraq, not leave it, even as a key Democrat says he believes top officials inside that White House have already secretly concluded they cannot win the conflict, postponing the inevitable so that it happens on the next president's watch. 
Senator Joe Biden, the once and current chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, going where no Democrat has gone before, accusing the White House of knowing full well it has already lost Iraq, yet biding its time so that the next commander-in-chief will, quote, be the guy landing helicopters inside the green zone, taking people off the roof. Senator Biden further telling the Washington Post, I have reached the tentative conclusion that a significant portion of this administration, maybe even including the vice president, believes Iraq is lost. They have no answer to deal with how badly they have screwed it up. I am not being facetious now. Therefore, the best thing to do is to keep it from totally collapsing on your watch and hand it off to the next guy, literally, not figuratively. Biden's colleague, Majority Leader Harry Reid, and Speaker of the House Pelosi, putting their concerns about the conflict not in the paper, but in writing. In a letter to the president, the new power brokers telling Mr. Bush that a so-called surge is a really bad idea and that his own military advisors have already told him as much. In the name of television, this afternoon, Senator Reid reiterating his concerns before a microphone. The surge is a bad idea. The surge is a bad idea. The president has said he was going to listen to his commanders. If he's listening to his commanders, he can't do this. I know he's shuffling some in and out, obviously, because they're not telling him what he wants to hear. But he, what he needs to hear is the present situation in Iraq is deteriorating before our eyes, and a surge will not help. A group of senators from both parties taking their concerns directly to the president today with a meeting at the White House. One Republican in attendance, Senator Larry Craig, saying it was not a meeting with lots of smiles. The Democrat Barack Obama in attendance saying at least the president appeared to have his listening cap on. It was an open-ended uh, discussion. Uh, the president asked for our opinions. Uh, there was a wide-ranging conversation. I think uh, both Republican and Democratic senators expressed grave concern about the situation in Iraq. Uh, I personally uh, indicated that uh, a escalation of troop levels in Iraq was a mistake. He said he understood uh, my, uh, my perspective. I, I take him at his word that he was listening to what we were saying. Okay. As for how the White House is responding to the Democratic onslaught, the strategy apparently trying to put the onus for change in Iraq onto the Democrats. That's precisely the kind of dialogue the president would love to have, which is, okay, when you say we want to do anything we can, what is that, and how do you define success? And again, Senator Reid, who has just put together this letter, and there's the implicit offer that they think that they may have a way for figuring out how to help Iraq succeed, where they, they say we want to do everything we can to help Iraq succeed in the future. Uh, we want to hear what their ideas are. Time now to call in our own Jonathan Alter, also, of course, senior editor at Newsweek magazine. John, good evening. Hi, Keith. Did any hope the White House might have been harboring that key Democrats would be pulling their punches on Iraq, that many people might have expected that that might be the case? Did all that just evaporate today? I think it pretty much did. There's a new Democratic Party line, which is anti-surge, surge protector, to put mm. it in uh, computer terms. And I don't think... Uh, this thing is going to divide the Democrats. Uh, I don't think Hillary Clinton or anybody else who's been making hawkish sounds in the past is going to get too far away from uh, this, this line against the surge. The question is not really so much pulling punches as whether the Democrats will pull close their purse strings. That's the power mm -hmm. that the Congress uh, has, and it remains to be seen uh, whether they'll do that. If they do it, for troops on the ground right now, highly unlikely, because that would hurt them. It would also open them uh, to the charge that, you know, they've lost the war for, for the country. But I think what you will see, Keith, 
down the road is an indication by Democrats that they will not fund an expansion of the war. They'll only fund the status quo if the president insists. Is this how they finesse that very fine line, John? I mean, Jack Murtha was on the newscast yesterday and told us that that uh, basically every appropriation from here on in, every item item by item will be reviewed. Is that is that the way to do what they want to do in terms of uh, cutting off the spigot without looking like they're endangering the troops? Yeah, but they're going to be walking a fine line on that, and the Republicans are going to constantly make it seem as if they're you know, cutting support for the troops. But what's, what's going to end, as Murtha indicated, is a kind of a legislative trick where the administration, with a Republican Congress, would fund the war, which is $8 billion a month at this point, uh, with supplemental appropriations that were sent through in a rush without any uh, analysis of, uh, of the money being spent. And that, those days are over. You're going to see really rigorous analysis. So today, for instance, a study came out from Harvard saying that the long-term costs uh, of dealing with uh, uh, disabled veterans and the other costs associated uh, with this war down the road are between 350 and 700 billion dollars just on veterans benefits. Those sorts of numbers are the kinds of things that you're going to be hearing in the days ahead. In addition to uh, his unprecedented comments, essentially saying that uh, the Bush long-term strategy is to wait for the next inauguration, uh, <laughs> Senator Biden also announced his schedule for hearings on Iraq. Mm -hmm. But uh, where should we expect or set our expectations for that as a showdown? Is that is there is there a goal to it, or is the goal the contentiousness of it? Well, I don't think the Democrats want to be too contentious. They want to be firm and aggressive, but not, uh, you know, destroy this notion of civility that you heard so much about uh, yesterday. The Fulbright hearings uh, about the Vietnam War might be a bit of a model uh, for Joe Biden if he can restrain his own volubility enough to have kind of sober-minded but tough uh, hearings without a lot of histrionics. Um, they might not make the most riveting television imaginable because some of it is green eye shade stuff, really asking tough questions about how the money's going to get spent. And, and is Biden, to some degree with these hearings, opening himself up to a charge that he's grandstanding for a possible presidential bid again? I guess, yeah, sure, he'll have to uh, do that. But he also has opportunity here uh, to strut his stuff. And he does have considerable knowledge about foreign policy. He has a pretty interesting proposal for Iraq, too, that would basically divide it into three countries, uh, and partition Iraq. And I think that's an idea that you're going to be hearing more about in the days ahead, too. Jonathan Alter of Newsweek and, uh, of course, of MSNBC. Great thanks, as always, for your time. Have a good thanks, weekend. Keith. Shortly after U.S. forces marched into Baghdad in 2003, the Weekly Standard published a jeering article titled The Cassandra Chronicles, The Stupidity of the Anti-War Doomsayers. 
Among those the article mocked was a war novelist named James Webb, who's now the senator-elect from Virginia. The article's title was more revealing than its authors knew. People forget the nature of Cassandra's curse. Although nobody would believe her, all her prophecies came true. And so it was with those who warned against invading Iraq. At best, they were ignored. A recent article in the Washington Post ruefully conceded that the paper's account of the debate in the House of Representatives over the resolution authorizing the Iraq War, a resolution opposed by a majority of the Democrats, gave no coverage at all to those anti-war arguments that now seem prescient. At worst, those who were skeptical about the case for war had their patriotism and or their sanity questioned. The New Republic now says that it deeply regrets its early support for this war. Does it also deeply regret accusing those who opposed rushing into war of abject pacifism? Now, only a few neocon dead-enders still believe that this war was anything but a vast exercise in folly. And those who braved political pressure and ridicule to oppose what Al Gore has rightly called the worst strategic mistake in the history of the United States deserve some credit. Unlike the Weekly Standard, which singled out those it thought had been proved wrong, I'd like to offer some praise to those who got it right. Here's a partial honor roll. Former President George H. W. Bush and Brent Scowcroft explaining in 1998 why they didn't go on to Baghdad in 1991. Had we gone the invasion route, the United States could conceivably still be an occupying power in a bitterly hostile land. Representative Ike Skelton, September 2002 I have no doubt that our military would decisively defeat Iraq's forces and remove Saddam. But like the proverbial dog chasing the car down the road, we must consider what we would do after we caught it. Al Gore, September 2002 I'm deeply concerned that the course of action that we are presently embarking upon with respect to Iraq has the potential to seriously damage our ability to win the war against terrorism and to weaken our ability to lead the world in this new century. Barack Obama, now a United States Senator, September 2002 I don't oppose all wars. What I'm opposed to is a dumb war. What I'm opposed to is a rash war. What I'm opposed to is the cynical attempt by Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and other armchair weekend warriors in this administration to shove their own ideological agendas down our throats, irrespective of the costs in lives and in hardships borne. Representative John Spratt, October 2002 The outcome after the conflict is actually going to be the hardest part, and it is far less certain. Representative Nancy Pelosi, now the House Speaker-elect, October 2002 When we go in, the occupation, which is now being called the liberation, could be interminable, and the amount of money it costs could be unlimited. Senator Russ Feingold, October 2002 I am increasingly troubled by the seemingly shifting justifications for an invasion at this time. When the administration moves back and forth from one argument to another, I think it undercuts the credibility of the case and the belief in its urgency. I believe that this practice of shifting justifications has much to do with the troubling phenomenon of many Americans questioning the administration's motives. Howard Dean, then a candidate for president, and now the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, 
February 2003. I firmly believe that the President's focusing our diplomats, our military, our intelligence agencies, and even our people on the wrong war at the wrong time. Iraq is a divided country, with Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish factions that share both bitter rivalries and access to large quantities of arms. We should honor these people for their wisdom and courage. We should also ask why anyone who didn't raise questions about the war, or at any rate, anyone who acted as a cheerleader for this march of folly, should be taken seriously when he or she talks about matters of national security. thoughts on this Iraq survey group uh, report that, that just came out that George Bush seems to be ignoring. It's getting criticism from uh, both right and left for uh, what it does and does not include. Uh, tell me your perspective on it. Well, you know, what I think is interesting um, that didn't get very much coverage at all is a fundamental point, um, which a lot of people know about, and it has to do with the core issue, oil. Um, we had Antonia Juhas on, and I'd encourage you to talk to her. She wrote the Bush Agenda, Invading the, econo- invading the World One Economy at a Time. And one of the things she pointed out was that key in these recommendations um, is the privatization of Iraq's oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know, of course, um, let's be very clear who the people are on the Iraq study group panel. I mean, it is important that they said that, you know, this war is a catastrophe. That's very significant. It's hard to believe that that is uh, a revelation now. But the Iraq study group advised that Iraq privatize its oil industry and open it up to international companies. Um, as Antonia Yuha said, put simply, the oil companies are trying to get what they were denied before the war at any time in modern Iraqi history, access to Iraq's oil under the ground. So people should pay close attention to that as a motivating force for what's happening here. Um, I think that's very critical. It's important that the, uh, the Iraq study group, you know, called a bipartisan group, though there are no Iraqi experts on it, and that's a great failing of yeah, and, there, and there, frankly, there was nobody who sat on the panel who disagreed with this endeavor um, back in 2002. Absolutely true. Um, We interviewed a man in Iraq who used to be a restaurateur in Minneapolis, a very popular restaurateur named Sami Rizuli, and he moved back home to Najaf to just help people at home, a remarkably brave man. And we said, what would it be like, Sami, if the U.S. troops were to leave today, if the uh, the U.S. troops were to leave today? And he said, al-Qaeda would leave. He said, you have to understand that. Iraqis don't like Mm al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda do not like Iraqis, but al-Qaeda stays because they hate the U.S. 
Now, that's a very significant story that rarely gets out there. I mean, Bush continually trying to make the connection. You know, um, we're based in New York, and our governor, who could be a Republican candidate for president, is Governor Pataki. He said he wants to place a, um, a piece of the statue of Saddam Hussein in the foundation of a new World Trade Center. Oh, God, I hadn't heard that. If he does that, it will be the first known connection between 9-11 and Iraq. <laughs> wow, that is really, I hadn't heard that. Man, that is really next stop crazyville there. I mean, that is just absolute lunacy. Well, I mean, I mean, clearly, listen, the, uh, the Iraq survey group, it came out, and it was very dodgy on the notion of permanent occupation of Iraq. And, uh, you know, you've got guys like James Baker, who's, uh, who's essentially counsel for the Saudis uh, and obviously an oil person. And um, <clears throat> I think it's been, you know, at this point, we know that there's only maybe 2 to 5% of uh, the conflict in Iraq involves foreign fighters. And uh, we know know that there is a natural um, animosity between the uh, Sunni insurgents, uh, who are basically secularists, and uh, al-Qaeda, um, and, and, and of course this, this, uh, this, this whole, uh, I guess, uh, narrative that somehow we're fighting terrorists uh, who could uh, hurt us from Iraq is, is simply a joke, uh, when in fact, uh, you know, to the extent that there's uh, really activity al-Qaeda-wise, uh, Al we're starting to see it in Afghanistan. Another key point, though, that was very important that they raised, it doesn't give it as much attention, but it's certainly known throughout the world, is that the Middle East issue, Israel-Palestine issue, mm -hmm. has got to be resolved, and that is core here. But I do think it's key to look at who these people are. Uh, people like uh, James Baker, whose own family is heavily invested in the oil industry. You know, also, he runs Baker Botts. That's his law firm, one of the key law firms representing oil companies across the United States and the Middle East. And then you've got Lawrence Eagleburger, who is the president of Kissinger Associates, who's one of the leading multinational advising firms for advising U.S. companies who are trying to get contracts with Saddam Hussein and get work in Iraq. Um, this is really key, and we don't hear very much about this. I mean, you have um, both Baker and Eagleburger, and this is something Antonia Juhas really expanded on, key participants throughout the 1980s and early 90s of radically expanding U.S. economic engagement with Saddam Hussein with a very clear objective of gaining greater access for U.S. corporations, particularly oil corporations, to Iraq's oil and doing everything they could to expand that access. I mean, Baker's law firm, Baker Botts, represented Halliburton. Let's not forget that Baker's law firm, Baker Botts, represented the Saudi regime um, against the 9-11 victims who were suing the Saudi government for the attacks of 9-11, right? Baker Botts was on the side of Saudi Arabia, not the 9-11 family. So let's be clear about who these people are. But even they said that we are in a crisis situation that has to be resolved, and Israel-Palestine is at the heart of it. Well, I took a walk around the world to ease my troubled mind. I left my body lying somewhere in the sands of time. But I watch the world flip to the dark side of the moon. I feel there's nothing I can do. Something to do with you I really don't mind What happens now
For more on where the president's current stance places him currently and historically, let's call in Nixon White House counsel John Dean, author of the books Worse Than Watergate, The Secret Presidency of George W. Bush, uh, and, of course, Conservatives Without Conscience. John, good evening. Good evening, Keith. Let me start with his overall assessment. Between that opinion number, 27% approval on handling Iraq, to the speech by the Republican Senator Smith from Oregon, is this presidential administration in peril, not from impeachment necessarily, but from some sort of internal revolution within the Republican ranks? Well, Bush did a wonderful job of dragging them down in the election that I'm sure they have not forgotten. Keith, a president rules most powerfully with his bully pulpit. This president has never been very good at that. He's obviously got new plans in the works. He's going to have to go out and sell them. I'm told he's pretty good one-on-one. He may well be able to keep his party people in line. But if he doesn't have something new to say to them, something that they believe and can buy into, and then they can in turn go out and sell it at home, he is in trouble. So we'll have to wait and see what his review comes up with. But I think he's got to realize given the aftermath of the election, he's in trouble. But so far, he hasn't realized it. There hasn't been anything new. And about Iraq, do we attribute that kind of ostrich-like stance from the president and what we heard from the defense secretary in his kind of parting shot today? Does this all tie into that prescient remark that you made before the election, that even if the Republicans lost control of both the House and the Senate, Karl Rove and the others in the White House would view that setback as nothing more than a temporary phase? Is that Could they still be believing this is a temporary phase politically? I suspect they do. Uh, If you look at what kind of President Bush is, and I did this actually back in 2004, in April of 2004, and then again in May of 2006, uh, drawing on the very classic analysis by James David Barber, who puts presidents into various schools and categories, and he said this president would fit on his criteria into an active negative. Those are people like Woodrow Wilson, uh, Hoover, uh, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon. They're people who ride their policies right down to defeat until the very end, and their presidents don't do very well. So I would, I, I think it's going to be very surprising if this president does change, uh, and that's why I think he's in a lot of trouble if he doesn't. Having dealt with cynical and disastrous presidencies up close, does it look to you like this one, this president having politicized his way into Iraq, might now be going to try to hold back getting out of Iraq until it can be used to his party's benefit in the 2008 campaign, or is that too cynical even for this administration? Well, that's a fair question, Keith, because I did work for a a president who did want to take every advantage. And I think uh, Nixon was unable to pass pass the torch because he had to leave before then. I think this president is very definitely going to try to do something where the administration that follows him will not do to him what he has done to Clinton. And that is to blame everything on them because there's a lot of blame to be pushed around in this instance. So if he can pass the torch and help the, uh, the Republican Party get somebody in there in 2008, he's certainly going to do that. So that'll be a part of his calculation. He's a very political president. I still retain a negative fondness for James Buchanan, but we have talked about this White House being the textbook case of authoritarianism before. Uh, Since the last time we discussed this, the war in Iraq has unbelievably gone to even much worse from the original bad. Uh, If in face of the overwhelming evidence that the plan in Iraq is not working, the public disapproval at this extraordinary high, if even now President Bush is not willing to change course on a real basis, and Mr. Rumsfeld's not not expressing any remorse, Might that be the deciding historical factor in declaring once and for all this president the worst one ever? 
Well, the, the worst president ever is a great parlor game. I happen to enjoy playing it, as a lot of other people do. The interesting part of the game is there's no criteria. I've often thought if the criteria were how long does it take us after a president who makes mistakes to bail ourselves out and extricate ourselves from the problems he creates, and we judge them on that basis, well, then this president well could be leaving a legacy that's going to take us a long time to bail out and would put him right down there with Richard Nixon, uh, who we're still bailing out from. John Dean, author of Worse Than Watergate and Conservatives Without Conscience. As always, John, great thanks for being with us. Thank you, Keith. Does this sound like victory? Does this sound like what the winners do? Dateline, New York. The Americans sold us out, says Ahmed Chalabi. Yeah. Ahmed Chalabi is turning on us, ladies and gentlemen. This is in uh, the New York Times magazine. He's betraying a touch of bitterness. Winners don't have that, do they? Quote, the real culprit in all this, says Chalabi, is Wolfowitz, the former assistant secretary of defense, whom he still considers a friend. They chickened out, says Chalabi. The Pentagon guys chickened out. The Americans screwed it up. It's a nice friendship you got there, Ahmed. That's not because they did too little, but too much. Chalabi thinks the U.S. should have exited quickly and turned things over to Iraqis like himself. It was a puppet show, he says, referring to the op- occupation. The worst of all worlds. We were in charge, and we had no power. America betrays its, friend, its friends, it sets them up and betrays them. I'd rather be America's enemy, unquote, Ahmed Chalabi. Is he talking about a victory? He, uh, Chalabi does say that he was not the guy who uh, was the source of the WMD Accusations, or that is to say, he was, it was not, uh, they did not come at his initiative. He says, Bush officials came to us and asked, can you help us find something on Saddam? Jolly, ladies and gentlemen. But, but wait, he's not the only one. Richard Pearl, who was uh, one of the original neocon advocates of the war. If he had his time over again, he would not have advocated an invasion of Iraq. He says this to Vanity Fair. I think if I had been Delphic and seen where we are today and people had said, should we go into Iraq? I think now I probably would have said, no, let's consider other strategies for dealing with the thing that concerns us most, which is Saddam supplying weapons of mass destruction to terrorists. I don't say that because I no longer believe that Saddam had the capability to produce weapons of mass destruction. I believe those two premises, and he was in contact with terrorists, were both correct. Could we have managed that threat by means other than a direct military intervention? Well, maybe we could have, unquote Richard Pearl. Is that what the victors do? Kenneth Edelman, 
a lifetime neocon activist and Pentagon insider who, with Pearl, was on the Defense Policy Board. He's famous for saying in February 2002, I believe demolishing Hussein's military power and liberating Iraq would be a cakewalk. Kenneth Cakewalk Edelman says in the same Vanity Fair article, I just presumed that what I considered to be the most competent national security team since Truman was indeed going to be competent. They turned out to be among the most incompetent teams in the post-war era. Not only did each of them individually have enormous flaws, but together they were deadly dysfunctional. Unquote. Unquote Kenneth Edelman. Does he sound like a victor? He says the idea of a tough foreign policy on behalf of morality, the idea of using our power for moral good in the world, is dead for at least a generation. After Iraq, he says, it's not going to sell. Unquote. I guess if he had it to do over again, Cakewalk Edelman says, I guess what I would have said is Bush's arguments are absolutely right, but you know what? You just have to put them in the drawer marked can't do. And that's very different from let's go. Yes, it is. It's almost the opposite. Staring at the What I'm not willing to get past is uh, this whole war on terrorism mission, okay? You know, Ben, you were right about if they were willing to admit the things that they have done wrong or not or not continue yeah. to say things as if Iraq is tied to the war on terror or ever was um, or whatever the hell the war on terror is. But I'll go one step further. I mean, they're threatening to do it again in Iran. Mm-hmm. I mean, the New York conservatives talk about it on Fox News Channel every single day. Dick Cheney, John Bolton, George Bush have threatened it over and over. So they're threatening to make the same exact mistake again. And you wonder why do we want to go into the past. We want to go into the past so we know what mistakes we made so we don't make them again. And then, you know, people will say, oh, liberals, they don't understand. There really is a threat. They think there's no threat. Oh, what? They don't remember 9 no, but that's you're missing the whole point. I do remember 9-11. I think there is a real threat, and it drives me crazy that we aren't going after the real I threat. I think everyone else doesn't remember 9-11. I, mean, you know, I feel like that day has been forgotten, and it's been dismissed for this entire war on terror and invading Iraq and killing Saddam Hussein. I mean, really, what is that? what did that get us a couple days ago? I, I, Jill, I think you are entirely right. I feel I almost want to write a country song, Have You Forgotten? No, okay. but, but because, I mean, no, no, no. But wait a minute now. They forgot entirely because if they hadn't, the whole public would clamor. The Democrats would clamor. The media would clamor. You know, credit to CNN for doing it once there, so, you know, five years later. But everybody would be clamoring. Why aren't we getting bin Laden? Why didn't we get Swahiri? Why haven't we decapitated Al Qaeda? And- instead, no one talks about it. No one. All they talk about is Iraq because, understandably, because our army is bogged down there for no good reason. But why? So no, 
9-11, nobody cares anymore. And nobody the, talks about it. If the mission that President Bush set out on was the appropriate mission, then killing the brutal tyrant a few days ago, we would have felt some sense of relief. There would have been something that, that shifted, something that changed. And there was nothing. I mean, if anything, it just perpetuated violence. Ah, God damn. I'm so angry. I'm, I tell you, man, I get... I get a re- I legitimately angry. Of course it's about the effing oil. Why would we? Why didn't we go after some other brutal tyrant? Why you did it take you, you this long a, to figure that out? I, just hold on. You think it's about it's a brutal tyrant? There is, is, is there a shortage of brutal tyrants in the world? We're not going to Africa. We're not going to Asia. We're not going anywhere else. And we don't give a damn about Osama bin Laden sitting comfortably in Pakistan. It's all about the oil. And it sickens me to my core. It should sicken us all until we throw all the bums out. Every single one that supports supported the war. Republican, Democrat, that still talk about this nonsense war on terror when it's nothing but a terrible, awful lie. If you want to do a war on terror, I'm with you. Let's go and do it. Let's well, fight fundamentalism. Let's get Bin Laden. Well, you Let's know, get Al-Qaeda. But that's not what you want to do. You want to steal people's oil, and then you want to sell it to me like I'm an idiot about the stupid freaking what you call the war on terror. Well, also, we're buying, of course, back into the term war on terror. I mean, it's like an NFL team declaring a war on, you know, blitzing. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a as we've said many times, it's a, it's a tactic used in the battle. Uh, and it's a, there's a real war in this uh, world, and it's the fundamentalists versus the sane people. Okay, the religious fundamentalists are nuts. They are crazy, crazy, deranged people, and we're sane, and we got to fight those people to make sure they don't start any more wars. And if you don't know who the real enemy is, then you don't know who you're fighting. With the the Muslim fundamentalists like Al Qaeda that go around blowing up people because they think Allah told them to, because they think they're going to get virgins or raisins in heaven, right? And the Christian fundamentalists in this country who are like, yeah, Armageddon rocks! Let's make sure we crush the Palestinians because God told me that he favors the Israelites. You freaking morons, you blithering idiots, you clowns, you nut, psychotic ass clowns, okay? <laughs> You're going to start all these wars because you think your God told you that, you, that you're, he's going to favors you over all others, over the Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians. He gave you land. Or better yet, I love this. It's not even that he gave it to you. He gave it to the Israelites. So you must protect them and crush the Palestinians, even if it means war, if it means endless conflict, if it means war in the Middle East forever. Yeah, God told me to do it. Fight the psychos. I'm tired of the psychos, and I'm tired of treating them legitimately. They're insane. We have to call them insane, and we have to take a real fight to the fundamentals. sacrifice. If in your presence an individual tried to sacrifice an American serviceman or woman, would you intervene? 
Would you at least protest? What if he had already sacrificed 3,003 of them? What if he had already sacrificed 3,003 of them and was then to announce his intention to sacrifice hundreds, maybe thousands more? This is where we stand tonight with the BBC report of President Bush's, quote, new Iraq strategy, unquote, and his impending speech to the nation, which it quotes a senior American official as saying will be about troop increases and sacrifice. The president has delayed, dawdled, deferred for the month since the release of the Iraq study group. He has seemingly heard out everybody and listened to none of them. If the BBC is right, and we can only pray it is not, he has settled on the only solution all the true experts agree cannot possibly work. More American personnel in Iraq, not as trainers for Iraqi troops, but as part of some flabby, ill-defined plan for sacrifice. Sacrifice. More American servicemen and women will have their lives risked. More American servicemen and women will have their lives ended. More American families will have to bear the unbearable and rationalize the unforgivable. Sacrifice. Sacrifice now. Sacrifice tomorrow. Sacrifice forever. And more Americans, more even than the two-thirds who already believe we need fewer troops in Iraq and not more, will have to conclude this president does not have any idea what he's doing and that other Americans will have to die for that reason. It must now be branded as propaganda, for even the president cannot truly feel that very many people still believe him to be competent in this area, let alone the decider. But from our impeccable reporter at the Pentagon, Jim Miklaszewski, tonight comes confirmation of something called surge and accelerate. As many as 20,000 additional troops for political purposes this in line with what we had previously heard, that this will be proclaimed a short-term measure for the stated purpose of increasing security in and around Baghdad and giving an Iraqi government a chance to establish some kind of order. This is palpable nonsense, Mr. Bush. If this is your intention, if the centerpiece of your announcement next week will be sacrifice, sacrifice your intention, not more American lives. As Senator Biden of Delaware has pointed out, the new troops might improve the ratio our forces face relative to those living in Baghdad, friend and foe, from 200 to 1 to just 100 to 1. Sacrifice. No. Drop in a bucket. The additional men and women you have sentenced to go there, sir, will serve only as targets. They will not be there short term, Mr. Bush. For many, it will mean a year or more in death's shadow. This is not temporary, Mr. Bush. For the Americans who will die because of you, it will be as permanent as it gets. The various rationales for what Mr. Bush will reportedly rechristen sacrifice constitute a very thin gruel indeed. The former Labor Secretary, Robert Reich, says Senator McCain told him that the surge would help the morale of the troops already in Iraq. If Mr. McCain truly said that and truly believes it, he has either forgotten completely his own experience in Vietnam, or he is unaware of the recent Military Times poll indicating only 38% of our active military want to see more troops sent to Iraq. All that or Mr. McCain has departed from reality. Then there is the argument that to take any steps towards reducing troop numbers would show weakness to the enemy in Iraq or to the terrorists around the world. This simplistic logic ignores the inescapable fact that we have indeed already showed weakness to the enemy and to the terrorists. We have shown them that we will let our own people be killed for no good reason. We have now shown them that we will continue to do so. We have shown them our stupidity. 
Mr. Bush, your judgment about Iraq and now about sacrifice is at variance with your peoples to the point of delusion. Your most respected generals see no value in a surge. They could not possibly see it in this madness of sacrifice. The Iraq study group told you it would be a mistake. Perhaps dozens more have told you it would be a mistake. And you threw their wisdom back until you finally heard what you wanted to hear, like some child drawing straws and then saying, best two out of three, best three out of five, hundredth one counts. Your citizens, the people for whom you work, have told you they do not want this. And moreover, they do not want you to do this. Yet once again, sir, you have ignored all of us. Mr. Bush, you do not own this country. To those Republicans who have not broken free from the slavery of partisanship, those bonded still to this president and to this administration and now bonded to this sacrifice, proceed at your own peril. John McCain may still hear the applause of small crowds. He has somehow inured himself to the hypocrisy and the tragedy of a man who considers himself the ultimate realist, now courting the votes of those who support a government that tells visitors to the Grand Canyon that the Grand Canyon was created by the Great Flood, that Mr. McCain is selling himself off to the irrational right, parcel by parcel, like some great landowner facing bankruptcy. Seems to be obvious to everybody but himself, or maybe it is obvious to him and he no longer cares. But to the rest of you in the Republican Party, we need you to speak up right now in defense of your country's most precious assets, the lives of its citizens who are in harm's way. If you do not, you are not serving this nation's interests, nor your own, indeed. Last November should have told you this. The opening of the new Congress tomorrow and Thursday should tell you this again. Next time, those missing Republicans on Capitol Hill will be you. And to the Democrats, now yoked to the helm of this sinking ship, you proceed at your own peril as well. President Bush may not be very good at reality, but he and Mr. Cheney and Mr. Robe are still gifted at letting American troops be killed and then turning their deaths to their own political advantage. The equation is simple. The country does not want more troops in Iraq. It wants fewer. Go and make it happen, or go and look for other work. Yet you Democrats must assume that even if you take the most obvious of courses now and you cut off funding for this war, Mr. Bush will ignore you for as long as possible or will find the money elsewhere or will spend the more money, the money meant to protect the troops and repurpose it to keep as many troops there as long as he can keep them there. Because that's what this is all about, is it not, Mr. Bush? That is what this sacrifice has been for to continue this senseless war. You have dressed it up in the clothing first of a hunt for weapons of mass destruction, then of liberation, then of regional imperative, then of oil prices, and now in these new terms of sacrifice. It's like a damned game of color forms, isn't it, sir? This senseless, endless war. But it has not been senseless in two ways, at least. It has succeeded, Mr. Bush, has it not, in enabling you to deaden the collective mind of this country to the pointlessness of endless war against the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time. It has gotten many of us used to the idea, the virtual white noise of conflict far away of the deaths of young Americans, of vague sacrifice for some fluid cause, too complicated to be interpreted, except in the terms of the very important sounding, but ultimately meaningless phrase, the war on terror. And the war in Iraq's second accomplishment, your second accomplishment, sir, 
is to have taken money out of the pockets of every American, even out of the pockets of the dead soldiers on the battlefield and their families, and to have given that money to the war profiteers. Because if you sell the army a thousand Humvees, you can't sell them anymore until the first thousand have been destroyed, can you? The servicemen and women are ancillary to the equation. This is about the planned obsolescence of ordnance, isn't it, Mr. Bush? And the building of detention centers and the design of a $125 million courtroom complex at Gitmo complete with restaurants. At least the war profiteers have made their money, sir. And we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. You have insisted, Mr. Bush, that we must not lose in Iraq, that if we don't fight them there, we will fight them here as if the corollary were somehow that if by fighting them there, we will not have to fight them here. And yet you have remade our country, and not remade it for the good, on the premise that we need to be ready to fight them here anyway and always. In point of fact, even if the civil war in Iraq somehow ended tomorrow, and the risk to Americans there ended with it, we would have already suffered a defeat. Not fatal, not world-changing, not but for the lives lost of enduring consequence. But this country has already lost in Iraq, sir. Your policy in Iraq has already had its crushing impact on our safety here. You have already fomented new terrorism and new terrorists. You have already stoked paranoia. You have already pitted Americans one against the other. We will have to live with it. We will have to live with what of the fabric of our nation you have already sacrificed. The only object still admissible in this debate is the quickest and safest exit for our people there. But you, and soon, Mr. Bush, it will be you and you alone, still insist otherwise. And our sons and daughters and fathers and mothers will be sacrificed there tonight, sir, so that you can say you did not lose in Iraq. Our policy in Iraq has been criticized for being indescribable, for being inscrutable, for being ineffable. But it is all too easily understood now. First, we sent Americans to their deaths for your lie, Mr. Bush. Now we are sending them to their deaths for your ego. If what is reported is true, if your decision is made and the sacrifice is ordered, take a page instead from the man at whose funeral you so eloquently spoke this morning, Gerald Ford. Put pragmatism and the healing of a nation ahead of some kind of misguided vision, a tone. Sacrifice, Mr. Bush? No, sir, this is not sacrifice. This has now become human sacrifice. And it must stop, and you can stop it. Next week, make us all look wrong. Our meaningless sacrifice in Iraq must stop, and you, sir, must stop it.